hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Bible Breakdown. I'm very excited to continue in our series on Genesis. So last week we talked about Cain and Abel. So the first murder when Cain was jealous of Abel and killed him because God did not accept his offering the same way he accepted Abel's. And then now we're moving to another very well-known story in the flood and Noah. So Obviously, the flood is a pretty commonly known story, um, but it also has some big questions surrounding the story and some confusing details that we get. So we're going to look at some of those. I've carved out some time this week to be able to look at some of those things that you might wonder what the heck is going on here. So we're going to do that. Uh, And just uh, you probably noticed this if you've been listening or you've just read Genesis before, but Genesis 1 through 11 um, is some of the most difficult information in the entire Bible to understand Um, between creation. um, You think about Cain, like when he finds a wife, where'd she come from? Then we got this flood and like, okay, what's going on with that? And then we got the Tower of Babel. What's going on with that? Who are these sons of God and daughters of man? And there's just a lot going on in Genesis 1 through 11, you could spend about as much time studying Genesis 1 through 11 as you could like the rest of the Old Testament. Um, It's very complex. And I do want to introduce you to an idea if you have not been introduced to this already. But this idea of something called a polemic. So um, if you're not familiar, a polemic is a written or spoken uh, attack against someone else's opinions, beliefs, or practices. Okay, so it's basically... This idea that I'm going to write something that is contradictory to what you are writing. And you may be familiar with this also, but there are other creation and flood narratives from the ancient Near East. So one uh, one is the Epic of Gilgamesh um, that is um, fair, at least a little bit well known, um, but it's got creation story. It's got a flood story, um, some similar things. And there are others as well. Um, some of them are. I'd say them, but they're hard to pronounce, and I don't know what language they are. But there are other narratives that are similar to the one in Scripture. So there's a major difference between the biblical narrative and the narratives from these uh, pagan sources, from these other sources in the ancient Near East. Okay, So the other narratives uh, typically include... Uh, elements of chaos. So chaos is something that the the earth comes out of chaos, out of wars between pantheons of gods, things of that nature. There's a lot of intermingling of gods with humans and demigods as a result. And a lot of these things are the reason for these events that happen that uh, mirror those in the Bible. The Bible is unique in that it promotes that one God that in itself is pretty wild for the ancient Near East. It promotes that there's just one God, uh, but that he created out of design and he created out of order and that humanity's sin separates humanity from God because God is holy. So those are two major differences that we see between the ancient Near East versions of the flood, of creation. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm not sure, but there may be something akin to the Tower of Babel, which we'll talk about next week. Well, that's major. The, one of the major differences is that the Bible promotes this God as holy, meaning that he is decidedly different from humanity, that he creates out of order and design, and that he doesn't act um, out of, um, shall we say, maybe like 
vengeance or he doesn't feel like, well, humanity has wronged me, so I'm going to get back at them, but rather he judges out of righteousness and out of his character. Um, and so there's that. And then God's intermingling with people is not this kind of like, often it is sexual in nature in these ancient Near East doctors. That's not obviously what uh, the Bible teaches about God that, um, so there are some major differences. I think too, uh, you know, it depends on how you look at this. Like, let's take, uh, let's take like a spyglass, for example. If you look at a spyglass through the big end instead of the small end, you're going to be like, oh, wow, a spyglass is kind of weird. Why would it do this? If you look at it from the right end, you're kind of like, oh, okay, I see what, I see what the spyglass is up to. But depending on how you look at it, it changes what you think of a spyglass, whether it's useful or it's not very useful, whether it's something that should exist or not exist. Uh, if you look at this from a, uh, like let's say a scientific perspective or some other kind of non like faith-based perspective um, you could say, well, see, there's more stories about the flood and creation. So that just shows like that uh, the Bible is just one of many religious texts and they just all have these stories. So you could look at it and if that's the vantage point you're coming from, that makes sense. But if you come from the vantage point of the Bible is true and you say, well, of course, then there are other, um, there are other, cultures and other civilizations that have stories about these things because they happened. Okay. And so that's the attack I take with it. Um, and you know, we don't really even know when you might, some people will say, Oh, well, this story, the Epic of Gilgamesh came before the Hebrew Bible and that very well may be true. Um, but also every, any time we've ever heard of any sort of old document, Bible included, it's a copy. So it's not like they have their date written in the corner like a good elementary student would if they wrote something. Okay, so not only that, but just knowing too that Moses from what we, uh, what we believe about how the Bible was composed, we believe that Moses composed these stories about these events long after through the help of the Holy Spirit. So even if one came before the other, does that mean that the Bible was just copying that and it wasn't true? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that the Bible maybe wants to tell the true story. The Bible wants to, that God wants to reveal the true nature of these events rather than um, these pagan renderings of them. So I hope that is helpful and not terribly confusing. But all that to say, um, the Bible represents these stories in a really unique way and that there's a lot for us to learn from how it's different from these uh, other ancient Near East stories about the same events. So um, jumping right in then to some of the confusing parts of <laughs> Genesis 1 through 11, we're going to go into chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, who were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of man married the daughters, sons of God married the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Okay, there are a lot of strange questions that come up in this paragraph, but I think once we walk through it, it's going to seem like, oh, this isn't that weird. And it honestly is keeping with a lot of the other things that we see God's people do when they are in rebellion against God. So the first thing we got we kind of wonder is like, okay, what does it mean by sons of God? So sons of God, we obviously think of 
the son of God, the member of the Trinity, famous guy named Jesus. Okay, we think of him as the son of God. So when we see the sons of God, we kind of like, hmm, what is what is that? So I want to pose to you the option that um, the sons of God refers to those who called on the name of the Lord. Okay, so in Genesis 4.26, this is after uh, Cain's genealogy at the very end of chapter 4. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So they began to call upon the name of Yahweh, their covenant God. Okay, that's our God as well. So... Uh, sons of God is a fairly common phrase. I say fairly, like it's not all over the place, but it's common enough in the Old Testament. It doesn't have quite the same meaning that we take it in the New Testament. Okay, They're, uh, the sons of God, God refers to Israel as his children, as people as his sons. Okay, And then kings are also described as sons of God. So the anointed king is also referred to as the son of God in the Old Testament. So it's not a name that is exclusively for Jesus really until we get to the New Testament. So when we see it, we don't necessarily need to think that there is some deity attached attached to this phrase, okay? And so some people will say, oh, the sons of God were like angels or like some sort of angelic being. And that's at least a semi-common view out there. And the following is that in verse four, this Nephilim was the result of this kind of unnatural union. We'll talk about what the Nephilim are. I do not view that as a a very viable option for a few different reasons. It's one, it's one of the more complicated options. And generally Occam's razor, you know, you learn it even in like grade school, like the simplest explanation is generally the best. You have to do a lot of work to get to the point where you're saying, oh, and clearly the Bible attests to the fact that uh, angels and humans were um, having sexual relations. You have to really try hard to make that work. Um, the idea that, the sons of God, people who call on the name of the Lord, were with these daughters of men, who I'll talk about in a second, but I would say those are those who did not call on the name of the Lord. That's a that's a fairly easy transition, a lot more natural. And then also, again, it lines up with what we see God's people do in a lot of scripture. Israel's people um, from the very beginning of the time in Canaan intermarrying. You think of Solomon taking foreign wives. You think of um, just all of the the prophets where um, they refer to Israel as kind of like um, like a prostitute going after um, other uh, husbands instead of staying with the Lord. This is a pretty common thing that we see God's people do. And we even see not only just imagery of it, but also actually uh, actual marriages coming out of um, people from from the land of Canaan and things like that. So it really is a much more simple explanation. And sons of God totally fits within the realm of like God's people. He's going to refer to Israel as his children. Um, he's going to refer to the kings of Israel as his sons. So that's what I would say. And so when we say sons of God and daughters of man, so I would say that daughters of man refers to those who do not call on the name of the Lord. So it looks like enough time has passed that there's kind of been a split in terms of um, it's not just Seth, Adam, and Eve hanging out and they're like, well, all right, Eve's going to go and not worship God and me and Adam are going to stay over here. Like there's obviously been enough time and generations that there's become this split. Okay. There are people who called on the name of the Lord and there were people who did not. And I don't think it's um, meant to say that all the women were not following God and all the men were. I think it's more just to um, kind of this imagery of the people of God were marrying with people um, who were not of God and they took any wives they chose, it said. So 
that's what I think about this. Uh, again, this is something that a lot of people read and they're like, what is going on here? Um, but that's how I would take it. It's really just the intermarrying of God's people with people who have walked away from God. How that happened in the span of the generations from Seth and everything and Cain. Don't know. But it happened. And it's not too hard to imagine. Uh, we did get a pretty long genealogy of some of uh, Cain's descendants uh, up earlier. So there's, uh, I think, good reason to believe enough times passed that, you know, some families were like, mm, we're not going to do that. We're not going to call in the name of the Lord. Okay, so then moving down there to uh, verse four. So again, this term Nephilim. So this is a transliteration from Hebrew. That's basically how you would say the word in Hebrew it is not translated because there's no English Nephilim, right? So a lot of times they'll do that when they're not sure what something is. So they're like, oh, well, we don't want to mess it up. So we'll just transliterate it. So the Hebrew word for Nephilim is Nephilim. So um, it's very uh, rarely attested to in scripture. It's not one of the more clear words. Um, but what it likely refers to is um, probably this exaggerated, um, possibly to an extent, mythical group of giants who were also just very violent. Okay, so that's likely what this refers to. And one of the reasons that we see that, one of the reasons we think this is, uh, there's a couple reasons. First, uh, violence is throughout the earth before the flood, and that's one of the reasons that God has decided that um, the the people needed to be, we kind of needed to hit a hard reset, um, and that there's just a lot of evil in the earth. So that's one reason that would kind of give us the nature of these people. Um, then also the um, Israelite spies, the 10 spies, they refer to, uh, the only other use of this word in the Old Testament is when the spies say it's a land of giants when they're talking about Canaan. And it says they are all giants. So basically they were saying everybody in Canaan is a giant compared to us, which wouldn't really attest well to a race of actual giants, um, especially because it's not mentioned anywhere once they actually enter the land. And in all likelihood, they were referring back to this, again, this like either larger than usual, more violent than usual, possibly had some mythical elements that had been attached to it over time. They were kind of exaggerating by referring to the Nephilim. So that's, that's kind of the idea is they're seen as these giants going in, going forward in Israel's history. Um, so that's kind of what we assume. But again, to think that all the people of Canaan were giants, that doesn't really make them a special race if everybody in a, an area is that way. And also, again, when Josh was conquering all the areas of Canaan, we don't really get, we get some um images and some descriptions um even in uh, i think numbers of like people that are larger than normal but um and not not a lot to say that all the people in canaan are giants so and it's also people assume that the um sons of god and the daughters of men are the ones who bred the nephilim and again that's a reason that people believe it's some sort of unnatural like mixing of heavenly beings and earthly beings but it says the nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of god came or married the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So it's kind of saying like they were there and they continued to be there. That's, I think the most natural reading of that. So um, in fact, I would say the, instead the end of verse four, when it says these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, that's what refers to the uh, sons of God's offspring with the daughters of man. So the people who followed God who intermarried with uh, people who didn't follow God, that is probably more likely who he's talking about. And, 
and mighty men of old sounds awesome men of renown sounds sounds awesome but um it's not really a compliment they were referred to as mighty because of their prowess in battle most likely um and then the renown is maybe more like infamous rather than like of like something good so um that's something we have to keep in mind too these this sounds really positive but it's probably not an example of a mighty man in the old testament was uh, nimrod which of course is in english an insult to call someone a nimrod um and nimrod was the guy who we believe is probably most responsible for Tower of Babel and then also the building of the city of Nineveh, who you may remember from the story of Jonah when he didn't want to go. And so, you know, the fish and all that good stuff. So that is kind of a dive into those first four verses um, just to kind of explain some of these more difficult elements here. Now, actually jumping into the story of the flood, got a little bit off there, but I found it interesting. I hope you found it helpful, even if you didn't find it terribly interesting. Um, but now jumping into the flood, we see kind of the reason for the flood. I'll read verses five through 13 in chapter six here of Genesis it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven for i am sorry that i have made them but noah found favor in the eyes of the lord these are the generations of noah noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation noah walked with god and noah had three sons shem ham and japheth now the earth was corrupt in god's sight and the earth was filled with violence and god saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So this is the reason that we are given that God decides to bring a flood. There is incredible weakness, weak, uh, wickedness. That first uh, description is every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If that's not some emphasis on how bad things were. I don't know what is. So it was just um, total corruption. Uh, it appears that even these people who maybe called on the name of the Lord before, even those had chosen to go the way of evil. And perhaps that's related to the intermarriage. Um, again, in the Old Testament, the intermarriage um, between God's people and people who worship idols, they pretty much always sway the Israelites to worship idols. That's pretty much the only way it goes. So uh, instead, it's just Noah. Just good old Noah and his family that uh, are still in that good category here. Um, and so God's telling this to Noah, which I'm sure filled him with fear before he told him he was going to make him an ark. Um, but Noah walked with God. So even in the midst of all this evil, continually violence throughout the earth, corrupting the earth, uh, Noah stayed, stayed strong. Noah walked with God. And so God chooses Noah and his family to start over to repopulate the earth to be fruitful and to multiply and he saves noah because he walked with god now let's not think that noah was perfect we're going to see some noah sin before the end of his story we won't talk about it here but um noah wasn't perfect but again god no obviously the world's already been corrupted by sin to a great extent at this point um and we know that we have this original sin this bent towards sin so i think it's important that we remember noah wasn't perfect but he sought the Lord. He he walked with God. That was what he did. So even in the midst of times where he wasn't 
where he was sinning, he still, he sought the Lord. He called upon the name of the Lord. Um, so he tells Noah, he's going to, like, hey, Noah, um, you probably never heard of this, but you're going to build an ark. And let me tell you what an ark is. So he tells him to build this giant, giant ark. You may have heard of this replica. There's a replica in Kentucky of the original ark. Okay. It's um, a massive thing from what I've heard. Pretty cool. But um, the things that they need to keep it put together, like, I don't want to spoil it for you, but they use like metal nails and things that they probably didn't have back when Noah was there. That all just, I think, points to the fact that this was a miraculous work of God to provide for such a large ark. Okay. Because this thing is massive, absolutely massive. So clearly God uh, at work miraculously to make this happen, uh, to get a 600-year-old man to be building that. I don't know what 600 looked like, you know, was he like a 60 year old or was he just, just still spry? Like he was in his twenties. I don't know, but either way, he's building this giant thing, clearly a miraculous work of God's intervention to even provide f- with that ark. So, um, then he's going to tell Noah, uh, who else is going to get passage? Who else gets a ticket onto the ark here in verses one through three in chapter seven, it says, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So generally we think of the animals two by two, which is true, but some of them had uh, multiple twos that went. So seven pairs of clean animals, two pairs of the unclean animals, seven pairs of the birds. Um, If you know me at all, I'm not a huge fan of birds. I wish maybe we could have gotten rid of some of those, but not my call, obviously. But Noah and his household, they they are the only humans that get the ticket punched. Um, And that's because God recognized that Noah sought righteousness in that generation while everyone else was thinking evil continually all the time uh, in their hearts, in their minds, everything was evil. But Noah sought to be righteous before the Lord. And so God provides this way for him. So um, at the end of 6-2, he's told to store a bunch of food. So there goes the mystery of what they ate. They stored up what I would assume was vegetables and things of that nature. And uh, they were in this sucker for a long time. So he probably got pretty sick of all those vegetables and fruits, but um, that's what he had. So the floodwaters, um, we'll see throughout this, the narrative, they come from everywhere. So it comes from the earth. So you think like geysers and springs and groundwater, all sorts of groundwater coming up. Then uh, rain from the clouds says the, the windows of heaven were open. So it's like this special kind of rain too, that just pours out for 40 days. So continually, um, and you know what this is, int- I've always thought, like, I wonder what happened to the fish? Like, did they just get like beaten by rain? But it's actually fairly clear, um, that the animals that are killed are ones that are, uh, the birds and those who walked on the land. So, uh, verse 22 of chapter seven, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Uh, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. So uh, I guess the fish just uh, kind of wrote it out. I'm sure it was a little tumultuous, um, even for creatures that live in water. But um, apparently, I guess the fish, the fish are okay. I mean, that's why fish look so weird. Don't, don't repeat that to anyone. Um, but it does appear that it's mostly the land animals that uh, survive or that are 
taken down and that also go into the ark. Obviously, the fish wouldn't have done too well on the deck of a ship. Um, and so it rains for 40 days and then it takes uh, 150 days. The water overcomes the earth for 150 days. So that kind of makes me think the flood was in full effect. Um, the land, the earth was not at all inhabitable for 150 days. So a very long time, um, 40 days of rain and then 150 days total of water overcoming the earth. That is a lot of water. But then chapter eight says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Kind of almost makes it sound like God was just off in la la land or something. He's like, oh man, I forgot about all those people. I stuck in that ark. Um, but obviously God did not forget, but he did um, then again, intervene miraculously. It says made a wind blow over the earth. My first thought is, okay, if you blow wind over an earth that's covered in water, aren't you just going to kind of like move the water all around the earth? And uh, I think scientifically, I'd probably have a pretty good case there. Um, but the word wind is also the same word for spirit. So when God's spirit's hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1, that's the same word for wind. Um, this God's wind is not normal wind. So it's we shouldn't take it too literally when we see that. Um, uh, Ezekiel, uh, let's see the 36 or 37, there's this prophecy of the dry bones. It says he, uh, a wind went into the valley and it raises, it's this vision where it like raises up these dry bones back into an army. And it's not, again, it's not just wind, like just natural wind, like blowing today. Um, but it's this supernatural wind, the supernatural breath that comes from God. And so it's this uh, miraculous intervention of God to cause these waters to subside, even after they have owned the earth for so long. And so um, you probably remember the story. If you've heard before, Noah sends out a dove for a while and comes back a few times and then eventually doesn't come back. And they're like, okay, we're getting somewhere. And so then eventually they're able to come out of the ark uh, onto dry land. And God promises Noah that he is not going to flood the earth ever again. Perfect sign, the rainbow. Um, and so God says, basically, as long as earth is here, I'm not going to destroy it with the flood again. So he makes that promise to, to Noah. We know when God makes his promises, they are true and we can trust him. So uh, anytime we see a rainbow, we can be reminded of what God promised to Noah. Some people will be like, well, you know, it's just a refraction of light and water. I'm like, yeah, but who invented refraction and light and water? Okay, so boom, take that. Rainbow is awesome. And it is a sign of God's covenant that... Um, basically that he has mercy on us. Um, and that, as we move into application, I think that's the first thing. Our, we have to realize our sin deserves total annihilation. It's a gift of God that he is patient with us. Um, we may not be able to relate really well to this time when it was just violence and um, corruption of the earth or things like that. Maybe you haven't been a warlord ravaging lands and stealing stuff and killing people. Um, but as far as our hearts being evil continually and having only evil thoughts all the time, um, I think if we um, are old enough or maybe if we were even cognizant enough to recognize who we are before Jesus, that does describe us. Um, we're constantly looking to elevate ourselves. And sometimes, you know, we can think, well, I'm a pretty good person. Um, but when we're not in Christ, the good things we do, we do them for ourselves. We do them for renowned to we do them to feel good um, we do them with the hope of something in return 
Um, and we still, I think, struggle with those things, even when we are in Christ. But without Christ, we don't have the ability to have this um, unselfish good deed. Um, I don't know if any of you are friends, watchers, um, the episode where Joey and Phoebe argue about whether it's possible to do a, a truly selfless good deed. Um, I don't think it is possible unless we're in Christ to do a completely selfless good deed. Even when we are in Christ, it's really hard. And that's really the depth of our sin. And that's something to remember. So the fact that we made it for a minute on this earth before we were covered by um, the grace of God through Christ um, is just an act of patience and goodness and mercy from God. So this is, a, I think, a story that should remind us that um, we were we are not we are not better off than these people were um, when we are not in Christ. If we do not have Christ, we're no better off than these people who God said, you know what, we should just go ahead and start over. This this is not working out. So I think that's one of our applications. And then second, I think it's just this theme we're going to be seeing again and again. Okay, we saw it when God promises to send an offspring of the woman that will crush the serpent. We see it when God even provides this mark for Cain so that people will not kill him. We see it here with the ark, but God redeems his people in the midst of wickedness. And sometimes even in the midst of their own wickedness. And this one, Noah's known as righteous. In the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Cain, they're wicked and God still provides for them. God still has this method, this plan of redemption that we see all throughout the scripture. Mercy, grace, redemption, even in the midst of just constant sin and not pursuing him, not loving him, not being righteous in his eyes. God still provides a way for redemption in the midst of wickedness, both ours and the wickedness of those around us. And we we see a really good picture of this, um, of Noah's kind of situation. We see that in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 20. You can think about how the early church was also facing this. Uh, it's kind of long, but it's, I think, just uh, perfectly drives home the point, not only that God redeems, but that he's the same God. The same God that was here during the flood is the same God that's with us today. First uh, Peter 3, 13 through 20 says, Now who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, there's the connection, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, so Peter is exhorting them, don't suffer for doing evil. If you are going to suffer, it should be for righteousness. It's better to suffer for being righteous. Don't bring this on yourselves. Um, but honor Christ in your hearts as holy. And as we suffer for doing righteousness, hopefully this is a message to people uh, who Jesus is. Having a behavior that if somebody were to try to slander you, that people would be like, come on. You know, you know they're a person who really tries to do the right thing. You know they're a person. They're, they follow um, their they follow Jesus. Um, whether we agree with that or not, we you have to say that this person uh, seeks to do that. Um, and then comparing even 
how Christ suffered in the midst of wickedness and ultimately made a way for us to be righteous through him. So this story is a good reminder for us to think about who, who we are in relation to God. And we are continually evil all the time in comparison to God, but he has incredible patience, mercy, grace for us. And ultimately, just as he redeemed Noah and provided a way for him um, in this destruction through the ark, God has provided for us, not just for one event, but for all of eternity through the ministry of Jesus Christ.